Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. And today our guest is Dr. Michael Zayak. He's the head of medical affairs oncology at Novartis of Europe. So welcome to the Talking Biotech, Dr. Zayak. Hi, Kevin. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Yeah, you're very welcome. I think it's a really exciting addition to the series and really to learn more about how companies operate and, and how they adjust to changing times. And let's start out just by talking about some of the basics. Is How is the integration of technology into pharmaceutical R&D and, and medical affairs really changed over time? And, and what are some of the key milestones in that journey? Okay, great. That's a great question, Kevin. Um, I mean, I, I compare this um, a little bit to my own journey with digital, uh, which started about 35, uh, 40 years ago uh, in uh, research. And I think the first 10, 15 years of that journey both my own as well as in corporate was of plagiarization. I think we copied a lot from what was available. We took a lot of automatization from automobile industry and others, and that was incorporated into our production. Um, and I remember myself, I, my, my first research project some 35 years ago, where with regards to uh, human heart transplantation and bridging the gap with artificial hearts. So we really had a lot of technology from automotive. And then I think uh, accessible, workable PCs came into being. And I think what they did, um, they allowed us in, in medical science um, to publish and to, to write better and to really probably that spun a wave of um, publications of, of making things available to the public. And I think really help medical science um, from that aspect. And I think the next phase, I think, of digital and corporate medical and corporate pharmaceutical was dedicated systems based on that increased computing power. And a lot of these systems came in production of medicine, so in the white pill production, but also in biological production. Um, and then later on in research, in robotic testing or um, our library of compounds against various targets. Um, so basically taking away people um, doing it and by that increasing the throughput many, many, many folds, allowing us to test many compounds rapidly in cell systems. Um, and then more at the customer facing end, I think they increase computing power and handheld computing really brought um, customer relationship management systems, um, the ability of 
managing large sales forces and generating insight and customizing their behavior, not sort of the more back end of digital, which, which came into pharma, say some 10, 15 years ago. And I think the last phase, so after this plagiarization and then the, the more dedicated development phase, I think it, the intellectualization of digital, and that's for the last 10 years now, we move beyond replacing manual labor um, with computer and robots to replacing intellectual labor with AI system. And, and these systems um, allow us to better predict targets, to allow us to predict how the proteins we synthesize may fold in the quaternary state, guessing their biology much better. They allow us things like arfid tacking of our medicines, um, shipment. They allow us to better meet patient and customer need by stop second guessing them or better second guessing them using artificial intelligence. And I think we will discuss many of these aspects in, in, in this podcast. I think throughout these three phases of um, digitalization in the pharmaceutical industry, there are for me, two common items. I think we were trying to be in sync with our customers. <clears throat> and the other one is that um, this kind of technology change always needed considerable amount of cultural change. So although I think we are always talking about uh, being digitally adapted, the harsh reality is that our talk precedes our actions. And I think we need to always be very careful when we embed the next stage of digitalization that we move the culture, that we implement change along with it. Well, let's start out by talking about Novartis of Europe and mostly your area of the company. What exactly are you working on? And give me a good sense as to how that fits into the broader context. Yeah, in, in my area, which is more sort of towards the customer-facing end, we are basically working on two aspects of digitalization, intellectual, digital use, and that um, using artificial intelligence to better identify patients, to really make sure that the patients will get the medicine they need, not too much, not too little, not too aggressive treatment, not too conservative treatment, to make sure they have the right effect of medicine. Another area we are using digital technology is um, what I call the double personalization of information. So yes, in the past, we could have had a call center where we tried to meet the doctor's needs for calling in, say, when they were on their night or weekend shifts. But now I think what we have is we are, can meet the doctor's demand better by forecasting it using the AI system. And on top of this, we can access large databases 
and customize the information we give to the doctor to make it right for the patient. And I think that's what I call double personalization. And that's one of the area we're dealing with more on the customer facing side of pharmaceutical industry in my teams. Okay. So you talk about this idea of customization for the, for the customer, but what data are going into that? Is this genomic data or is this maybe some other kind of behavioral data? What data are going into that equation to give that prescription to mesh with what's happening with pharmaceuticals to guide physicians? It's a, it's a little bit of both. So to personalize it to the, the principal customer for us, which is the physician, it, of course, behavioral data. Um, what is this physician normally asking for? When do they want to be contacted? How do they want to be contacted? That's the simple behavioral data. Now then, when the physician has a specific question about the patient, that might then include clinical data, laboratory data, as well as genomic parameters such as gene signatures, such as um, the expression of certain receptors on a tumor cells, etc. It very much depends on the disease and the question the physician asks. So has in silico discovery of different drugs, has it really changed a lot in terms of how drug discovery is done? And what advantages does it have over what's been done traditionally? I think it has not revolutionized um, drug discovery, but it has increased its efficiency greatly. So we use, of course, in silico bones in a, in a preclinical modeling of targeting. So how could our, or how likely are our compounds hitting certain targets? And then, of course, we are looking into expanding it more into the clinic. And, and that goes back to my comment on, on culture and cultural change. I think the regulator has opened the door. I think US FDA uh, has, or Congress has enshrined a law that, that US FDA has to look more into modeling system. And so does the European regulator. And now that this door is open, we are looking more to try to also replace clinical studies with in silico trial. However, of course, at the moment, that is very much an intent of the regulator. And we as an industry have to come up with models which make the regulator certainly enough to call for approval. Until that step happens, I believe in silico will really help us in the early setup of, of studies. It will help us in the preclinical setting, but it will not in itself replace in human drug development at any point. Well, can we look a little bit more at the role of artificial intelligence in target identification? And then really validation of drug development. Like how has uh, artificial intelligence changed the uh, efficiency and effectiveness of drug discovery? Yeah, for me, it's, it's I also mean, and, and this is probably reflecting 
my age, I often think of a microscope. And if you think of a microscope, you have your ocular lens, I guess, which, which is usually a 10 times magnification. And then you have your revolving lenses, I think normally times one times 10 times hundreds. And now if I look at artificial intelligence, what it does help us is really to turn that revolving lens to gain much more insight into patients. So if we really start with that, we have the, the, the ability to gain insight from large, very, very imperfect data sets, which give us some patient characteristics, which might lead us to, to the better dosing of medicines, the better use of medicine, the identification of new targets in a certain disease. And if we turn the notch, say, to enlargement 10, then we might look at biomaterials of the patient. So these are laboratory data, these are cellular data. And here again, together with the disease outcome in these huge data sets, we can try to find um, novel target. And if we go down to the hardnet magnification, that puts it all together and it puts together the bio signals we find together with the clinical outcomes and the clinical signal and the patient reported outcome. I think that in, a, in an ideal world will lead us towards personalized medicine. Along the same line, how are real world data and real world evidence, how are they fitting into the scheme of regulatory and payer submission? And if, if we look across the potential challenges and benefits of incorporating uh, real-world data, real-world evidence, uh, what are the potential challenges? I think real-world evidence is what, at least in Europe, um, probably more so than in the U.S. today, um, has done up on to a payer submission packet. Whilst we have... Um, EMA, the European regulator, which is a little bit like the FDA covering a large geographic region of 27 countries, um, each of those countries has a different approach to the reimbursement of medicine, much like each HMO in the United States. Um, and when we submit our packages, we often submit real-world evidence and it might just be as simple as epidemiological data on a certain disease, but it might be more complex, um, uh, illustrating the burden of disease, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, regulators are perhaps where real world evidence is concerned, somewhat more conservative because their question is a question of, of efficacy. Whereas, of course, the payer are for efficiency. Efficiency questions can be well answered with real-world data. Uh, efficacy questions of a new medicine letter. So, um, so that's one of the limitations. The other limitation, and again, it's an experience we have very much in Europe and to a lesser degree in the United States, is um, the availability of good quality data um, that really limits how we can use real-world data today. And part of that is 
due to the interpretation of privacy laws in selected European countries. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Zayak. He's the head of medical affairs oncology in Novartis of Europe. And this is the Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. And we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Calabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Calabra's Talking Biotech podcast. We're, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Zayak. He's the head of medical affairs oncology in Novartis of Europe. And we're talking about the modern changes that AI, AI it's artificial intelligence, it's artificial insemination, and it's active ingredients. So I get confused. So I, we're talking about the changes in drug discovery and in the way it affects business in general with respect to AI. And how is AI being used nowadays to improve patient recruitment for clinical trials? Because this is always an issue. What impact has it had on the speed and success of trial enrollment? I, I think we're just uh, at the beginning and uh, let's see what we read from it in speed. Um, so what we, but, but not just we at Novartis, but many companies do is, of course, we calculate the epidemiology of a certain disease for countries for smaller regions of countries. Um, and for pathfight data, we then calculate the potential availability of patients uh, with a certain disease at a certain stage, um, at a certain site. There might be some seasonality in that. Um, uh, and we look at that patient availability when compared to a broad spectrum of competitive trials running in this environment. So I think at the moment, it really helps us to make some better informed decisions where to place our clinical study. But the clinical trial business, at least in the area I'm working in in cancer medicine, is very, very uh, competitive. So beyond having that knowledge, we still need to rely on the basic, which is to have an interesting medicine you want to test, an accessible protocol and appropriate remuneration for the investigators. Uh, that still is the bigger part when compared to using AI and advanced technologies in selecting finding sites and recruiting studies quickly. Yeah, but how do these digital technologies really give patients more choices and how do they promote greater diversity in who participates in clinical trials? I think here are digital technology, especially um, driven by the step up change we saw in COVID um, in the SARS-CoV-2 epidemic, I guess, pandemic, um, we really saw a step up in the decentralized clinical trial technology. Um, so 
we use a technology of uh, 15 modules, which allow you basically to do the whole trial in the patient's home. Um, now that sounds easy enough. And why haven't we done it before? And why would that bring more diversity? Well, patient choice brings more diversity in the first, but it also allows us to assess, especially also in the U.S., communities which are not necessarily going to hospitals for a variety of good and bad reasons. Um, it allows us to assess rural communities. For instance, here in Europe, we pioneered it in Sweden, which is a country quite large geographically with a small population, hence few centers accessible to rural population uh, easily. Um, and what we really saw is that we improved at least the rural city mix by using uh, decentralized clinical studies. And really the hope is, and, and I think that's an observation again from the US FDA, is that we will not just improve the rural city mix, but we will also improve um, the ethnic mix, the gender mix. And USFDA, I think in 2020, looked at their data and found that they had, in the data submitted for approval, um, they had 75% white Caucasian participants. Of course, alone in the US, it should be no more than 60% white Caucasian participants if the trials were to reflect the US population. Um, so you can see that we still have a huge gap, or we hope that decentralized technology is one step, but it will only be one step to really move us forward in um, better recruiting the right population. Other things are we really need to make sure that um, the PIs, the investigators, are of a diverse background. Um, and we haven't played too much attention into that, and we will do more. So that's digitalization, digital technology, including blockchain, making it more secure, really brings the opportunity of delivering trials in a patient home when they want it. Maybe one wizard they want to be at home, one wizard they want to come to the hospital. And that kind of choice attracts different patients, more diverse patients, um, opens it up to rural population, opens it up to population who have a natural aversion to um, official institutions, etc. Well, can you really help me see inside the black box here a little bit and really describe the process of using AI to generate predictive biomarkers in personalized medicine? Like, how does that work? And how, how advanced is this field of oncology in developing targeted therapies? Great, Kevin. So I, I can give you a very simple example. We started five years ago. Um, so we had a problem. We had a disease where you have too many red blood cells. Okay. Sounds harmless enough. Huh? Um, however, of course, for some patients with these too many red blood cells, um, that means that their arteries or veins can clot and they can have 
a stroke or a heart attack. However, that's only a small amount of those these patients uh, every year, say 3% maximum. How do we find those 3% of patients and give them more treatment than the other 90 plus percent of patients? That was our conundrum. There were some simple risk stratifications such as age above and below 65, or if you had an arterial clocking core. That's not very good though. So we look at the data set of 90 million patients. We found 70,000 patients with a particular disease. And within a few months, AI software allowed us to find two simple laboratory parameters to identify those patients more likely to get the clocking of the artery, hence more deservingly, if you wish, from a physician point, from a peer point, from a regulator point of view, to receive high quality and probably also costly medicine or other interventions, in this case, medicine. Well, I think this really brought personalized medicine to this particular disease. And it was only possible because we had artificial intelligence being able to crunch these large, very inconsistent data sets and making sense of sometimes less than superior quality of data. I guess my uh, confusion on this comes from the fact that I don't know what kind of data are going into this. And you say you have AI crunch the numbers. What numbers are they looking at? They're looking at um, every kind of patient data. In this case, we wanted to find simple parameters. So we didn't want to find a genomic signature. We didn't have biomaterial. This is old patient data from 20, 30 years ago. Um, so what went into it is things like your blood pressure, your blood count, your lymphocyte count, the outcome of your disease, so whether or not you had a stroke or a heart attack. All these kind of quotation mark, very simple data went into the black hole. So, so we're really looking at very basic data. And when we start to look at genomic overlays, not just uh, DNA sequence, but gene expression, uh, you know, I mean, these kinds of things could be informing future AI, but it, I can see it's going to go up exponentially in complexity. Correct. The complexity is going to be exponentially more. Um, and it may or may not bring us closer to some of the more complex questions. This was a very simple question or, well, for the patient, it's a very life-saving question, but we wanted to solve it very simply. And by chance, we were lucky and we found two simple parameters. Of course, we could have ended up finding nothing, in which case then you would resort to the next level, turning that revolving microscope towards genomic data, gene expression data, eventually in proteomics data, which I believe will give you better insights, even more. 
Well, with that said, what does the future of technology integration and pharmaceutical R&D look like? Will advancements in data collection and analytics really contribute to the development of truly personalized therapies? Absolutely. I think there's a nice saying being made about um, a Harvard professor about AI, physicians and AI. And I think the same is true if you scale it up to pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies um, will not be replaced by technology alone, but those companies not using this technology will become distinct in the past, I think. It's, uh, you really have to be on board using digital technology, including advanced analytics or AI. I think one, one example is of recent in Europe, in a, in a smaller biotech, which has been able to take a tumor sample from a patient's tumor, measure its um, antigenicity, so the ability of the tumor to trigger an immune response, predict the 10 most important antigens and that, and then construct the AI software, then construct as a vaccine against these 10 antigens. So each vaccine becomes personal to the patient with the tumor sample. And I think that's the first step in the right direction. And of course, we will not see that happening for every disease, because every disease, of course, could be treated personally. Like if you have a high blood pressure, hypertension, probably yours is different to mine and your, the treatment will be different. However, as the results with fairly non-personalized standard treatment are good, there's less unmet medical need. Where there is unmet medical need, like in oncology, like in autoimmune diseases, wherever we have to modulate the immune system to either stop or um, uh, cause uh, a reaction, I think there we will use these kind of personalization, including insights into genomic, into gene expression, into proteomic, uh, into um, post-translational modification, etc. Well, how have all these digital technologies really impacted patient engagement and communication within medical affairs, especially, say, in the context of oncology? I, th I think digitalization and um, the availability of information through only channels um, have improved patient knowledge and patient education and therefore engagement. Are we there yet that, that um, we can use them to communicate with the patient 100% better? No, not yet. I think there are many aspects we still have to improve. Um, part of that is technology. Part of that is, again, the cultural change. What will society allow us? What will society see as just of pharmaceutical companies and engaging with patients? Um, but I think overall technology has opened the floodgate to that engagement, both from the patient as well as former, from a pharma industry point. So I'll see you.
Well, that really does lead to the big question. So based on your experience at Novartis, if you were to stand back and give it that, you know, 10,000 foot view, what advice would you give to other companies in the biotech and pharmaceutical space that are looking to integrate digital technology into their R&D and medical affairs operations? I think for me, the most important thing is stay with your feet on the ground, meaning know what the question is. Don't develop technology in a free space, um, meaning don't have centralized technology development. Don't, don't do things just because you can do them. Do them to answer customer questions. So synchronize with your customer's needs and make sure that you meet those needs rather than to really free-spirited develop, develop, develop. Um, and the other thing is don't assume things will change because you have a great technology. Everything, even if you think it's great, does require considerable effort and cultural change and implementation management to really be adopted. Otherwise, it's like there are the best strategies that never implemented. Hence, we never know are they the best strategies. Or not. Oh, very good. So if people wanted to learn more about what's happening in AI drug discovery in Novartis, where can listeners learn more? I mean, their website, social media? I think there's an Novartis website where you can see what, what we are doing, but of course there are many other big pharmaceutical and, and smaller pharmaceutical companies website, and you can see what their te te technologies are. I always found it extremely insightful to look at the, the websites of the big consultancy firms like McKinsey, PricewaterhouseCoopers, and, and many others. More interestingly, I think there are also really high quality executive education programs. Um, so if you want to go the whole nine yards, I guess, as you say in the U.S., it's, uh, there are education programs such as Harvard and Wharton who look at disruptive digital technology um, in, in, corporate, uh, in the corporate world with a view to pharmaceuticals. Do they say go the whole nine meters in Europe? Uh, we don't play American football so well. I know my son is an avid football player. <laughs> well, Dr. Michael Zayak, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And well, we learned a little bit more about your company and, and how they adjust to changing times. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Kevin. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Write a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcast media. And most of all, share with a friend. Uh, we're coming up on 400 episodes going into, I think, our ninth year or something like that. And uh, it's really wonderful that you've been with us this long and lots more good stuff coming in the future. So this is the Talking Biotech Podcast by Calabra, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.